Hi, church family. Great to be with you again as we embark on a new book, uh, a new passage of scripture to enjoy together. Uh, so the story of Nehemiah has ended, and we're beginning a new study this time, jumping into the New Testament, the second book of uh, Peter, or the book of Second Peter, uh, my better way to say it. Uh, Peter's second letter to the church. And unlike a lot of letters in the New Testament, Peter's second letter is uh, very much a letter for the entire church, not a, not a subsection of a particular region. Um, and so it applies to the church across all of the world in which it was sent, and indeed across all of time, uh, even to us now. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this letter together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray you open our hearts to it today and pray that you open it up to our hearts. In the name of your Son, we pray this. Amen. Now, usually the apostles expect kind of a narrower reader base, uh, but Peter's letter is written to those through the righteousness of our... Uh, to, <laughs> to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Uh, and one of the tasks in reading Scripture is to determine who it was it was written for first, and therefore we can figure out, all right, is there any special kind of cultural significance to what's being said? What does it mean to them? And therefore, what can we derive more generally for us, uh, or more specifically for us, out of that information? Uh, so Leviticus, for example, was written for the Levite Jews. Uh, we can take the Leviticus, um, the passages in Leviticus, and take many examples and understandings of the the principles that God wants us to uphold in our life and what he considers holy and unholy. We don't worry, for example, about the, uh, the rules about not eating pork or shellfish because we are not Levites or Jews, and we don't need to grapple so much with those words. But Peter is writing here to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And if you're a Christian, then that means that Peter is writing not just to the ancient Christians in the ancient world, he is also writing to you, to you very specifically. And this information is meant to be valuable to you. And every word in it is written for you personally to the, uh, your benefit, um, for your benefit in this spirit-filled wisdom as much as anyone else that has ever been written to, as much as any other son or daughter of Jesus Christ that's ever lived. And there's some fairly powerful content addressed in this letter, um, in this three little chapter letter, this discrete little, little book that it is. Uh, the day of the Lord and all its terrible mystery is in chapter three. Chapter two is a distinct focus on the dangers of false prophets. But we'll start reading in chapter one as we should, and specifically in these first 11 verses from our reading. And these verses are mostly about virtue. Uh, they're about cultivating in ourselves the qualities of character that God approves of and that God desires in us so that we can living in keeping with the calling and the election that we've received. So let's go through that one step at a time. And it's nice working with a short passage uh, because we can really look at it in detail. And so we'll do so. Uh, so if possible, have Second Peter chapter 1 open in your Bible as we go. Go to your New Testament, go past the Gospels till you start hitting letters. If you hit John's letters, you need to back up. Uh, if you hit Paul's letters, then you need to go forward. And it's kind of in there somewhere. You'll find it. You're pretty good at this. And here's a little overview to begin with. Uh, pretty recognizably traditional epistle stuff. Um, we've got a greeting at the start of the passage. We've got a therefore and a hope at the end of the passage. And when we hit a therefore, we go back and see what it is there for. And the summary is that God has given us the means not only to be forgiven of our sins, uh, but to break away from the patterns of evil and destructive behavior that we associate with sin. 
And we can do that by taking the faith that we've been given and adding to, the, to it these virtuous qualities that make for a godly follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we seek these things um, to live in life. And if we do that, then we will not stumble in our walk. It's a beautifully contained and concise message. There's plenty for us to talk about here. So let's start at the start with verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now verse 1 is an insight into where the passage is going, however, and uh, it comes out in the use of this word faith. Uh, pistis in the Greek, a very common word, very important one uh, to the belief in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's the word that means believe and faith. Now, faith is, uh, as a word, even as a biblical word, it's got kind of a bigger meaning that can be confined to a single definition. There's a bit of drift there, uh, a bit of um, definition that we need to understand when it's invoked. And we can't really afford to skip over that. And so consider, for example, the way we use a word like hope. Uh, suppose you've just watched the State of Origin series or you're watching the State of Origin series, say you're in game two, your team lost game one, and they've pulled out a squeaking little tiny win in game two. And you might cheer and say, oh, that's given us hope. Now, hope that we might win the series after all, uh, after such a bad start, they've given us hope is the idea here. Now, in this case, what you actually mean is that they've given us reason to hope. Right? They've given us something to believe in hope. Uh, what our team gave us in this instance is a high-quality performance that ultimately meant that their team scored more points than the other team. But as a response to that, now we can have hope. They've given us reason to hope in that. But we'd say, oh, they gave us hope. And that's kind of the way that faith is being used here in Second Peter. Now, often, especially in theological discussions, the word faith is used to mean the very ability to trust God, like the fundamental capacity in our heart to trust God to save us, something we couldn't experience until God had sort of sandblasted away the sinful coating from our corrupted souls. But Peter's claim here is rather that God has given us a knowledge of him that is sufficient ground for this amazing faith, for this belief. It's reason to have faith. He's showed us who he is. He's made promises and he's confirmed these promises with miraculous signs. He's demonstrated that he's in control. He's given us a glimpse of what he is doing. Uh, and he's given us this knowledge of God, a phrase that Peter goes back to. We'll see that knowledge of God at the root of faith is showcased throughout this passage. And it starts uh, no later than verse 2 in this introductory blessing that's come through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter doesn't revisit in great detail the sort of the whole course load of what that knowledge is. Uh, this letter is written to those who have it. It sort of expects the reader to understand what the knowledge of God is in this case. We know it's the substance of the Gospels. It's the saving message of Jesus Christ. That's the knowledge of God. Peter's much more concerned with uh, that those who have been blessed with this reason to have faith, that they don't sit idly on that reason and sort of waste it, but instead they get to work living out its implications in their lives. It's a very active book. It's a compelling book. It wants you to do things. And he says as much in verses 3. And four, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, once again, uh, what Peter's talking about as the gift from God here is this knowledge of who God really is, how trustworthy he is, uh, that how faithful he is to his promises. Uh, promises to judge us according to his son's righteousness rather than our own sinfulness. Uh, promises to rescue us from the darkness of death. And all of this knowledge is meant to be freeing, not just in a distant judgment resurrection kind of way, but in a here and now way in the life that we live. And now verse 4 talks about having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And that's to say that the state of the world is uh, this world filled with people who are ignorant of this knowledge of God, who don't know him in this way, who don't understand this about him. Uh, it's a state of decay and corruption and kind of downward slide. It does, this doesn't mean that everything is always getting worse in all cases. Indeed, the, by a lot of important measures, the world is getting better and better. It's better now than it's ever been. Like frustrating as the coronavirus is, it's nothing compared to any of the plagues that ripped through Europe in the Middle Ages uh, or the absolute destruction of sickness caused uh, to the Aboriginal Australians when the Europeans arrived. That just sort of happened. Uh, you can say similar things about war and hunger and death in addition to disease in this case. And so all the horsemen of the apocalypse seem to have lost a few of their teeth compared to a few hundred years ago. But the desires of mankind, our hearts, have not gotten better. We're still a corrupt creature before God saves us. And why would we be anything else? The world still variously tells us a bunch of different half lies at best. Uh, full lies at worst. They say that we're special individuals whom no one has a right to correct or offend. Uh, they say that we are, we're savage competitors in sort of a winner-take-all race for fame or money or glory. Or we're merely these upright chimps who are slave to our own brain chemistry with no real free will of our own. We just do what our desires tell us to do. And these ideas are self-destructive because we know that we are not so special that we are entitled to anything. Uh, we run the gamut from barely functional to pretty good sometimes, but that's sort of it. And we can't accept that life is just a savage competition for material success because there's always people above you kicking down the ladder and there's always people below you clawing at your ankles. And like, what kind of meaning to life is that? And we know that we are not just upright chimps enslaved to the chemistry of our brains because we still feel like we make choices and we try to make the right ones uh, and we still definitely judge people for making the wrong ones. The closest thing outside of the knowledge of God is this sort of lumpy, inaccurate, partial knowledge that you get from other religions trying to grasp at the truth. But when the gospel is revealed to us, it shows what we already know and fills in all the blanks to make the whole thing make sense. We are special creations. But God is the one who bestows that value. We are made to strive and excel, but not in competition with each other. In a sense, in competition with ourself, with our own flesh, to become better than who we would otherwise become and become closer to the thing that God made us to be. And we're an order above the chimps and the other animals because we're not a prisoner of our brain chemistry or any other constraint on our will. Most of the torment in our lives, most of the stuff that happens to us, 
we call down on ourselves, if we're honest. And most of the joy and success that we get comes from striving with a God-given strength towards the values in life that He has revealed should be the core of our walk. And verses 5 to 7 are a list of these virtues that are essential to living the kind of life that God has desired for us. And we'll look at those virtues listed for us in in more detail uh, shortly. But then we go to verses 8 and 9, and they tell us why we would look for these things. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. They make your believing life, your life as a believer, more productive and more valuable. It makes you a more powerful instrument for God's goodness in the world. And failing to cultivate these virtues is being ignorant of what Jesus has done for those who call on his name. So that's not an option for us. In verses 10 to 11, other therefore, at the end of this passage. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of all this, we need to pursue the kind of life uh, with these kind of virtues, and God will be pleased to welcome us into his eternal kingdom on that final day. Now, we'll leave discussion to that final day, of of that final day to chapter 3, where it's sort of looked at in more detail, but... In summary, God's given us the resources we need to live a good, godly life through a knowledge of Him, which is the reason for our faith. And we please God and better ourselves in life by pursuing the virtues that we can, uh, that we grasp now in the light of what's been done for us. And now that we've been freed from this decayed, evil world, um, we can start pursuing this in earnest. We can be freed of the kind of the erroneous ideas that would otherwise hold us back, like the idea that everyone dies, so you get in all the living that you can right now, or that we're the center of the universe and the only thing that matters. We're appropriately positioned once we know God to pursue what goodness is. And if we pursue those virtues, then we are confirming and underscoring and assuring in the world that the faith that has bloomed in us is real and thanks to the knowledge of God. Now, you'll never find a passage whose application is plainer and more accessible than this. Peter is saying, hey, you, you specifically, Christian, the one reading this, the only thing that you bring with you into every trial and difficulty you will have in your life, the only thing you will have with you every time is your own character. So work on improving your own character so that you'll be more godly and the decisions you make will produce more godly results. So let's look at this list of virtues that Peter is recommending to us in verses 5 to 7. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Now there's seven listed here. We've got goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Peter doesn't indicate that this is the whole spectrum of character attributes that a Christian should have, but they pour from his pen uh, as those that seem the most urgent to him and the most fundamental. 
The order doesn't seem very important. Um, if it was, then it would be odd to have love as the final thing to be building on rather than the foundation of it all. But let's look at these seven of what Peter is enjoining to us, the people of God, to build in ourselves. It begins with goodness. Now, goodness, not in the sense of producing good quality things uh, or having to search, um, or rather, but it's goodness in the sense of having to search to do good in our lives uh, and having that sense of wanting to do good being close to our hearts in all our decisions. We don't use the word good like that in modern parlance very much. It's sort of fallen out of favor. It seems sort of pompous to say that I want to be a source of good in the world. I would like to do good. Uh, sort of uh, confined to the pages of comic books and, um, well, religious tracts. Otherwise, people will not know what you mean when you say goodness. Like, do you want to make people feel good? Do you want to give them a, um, a, some nice things that they will like? Is that what goodness is? These don't cover off the idea of goodness very well at all because being good is what's otherwise called being righteous or virtuous or upright in Scripture. It means seeking to do good and not evil as a core decision-making uh, philosophy of our life. And it's really as simple as it sounds. Now, when it's made very easy for us, then goodness is very easy but also very cheap. You know, click here to show that uh, you say no to bullying. Okay, fine, that's a very cheap substitute for goodness um, and one that we're deceived into believing is worth something in this decade. Sort of a thoughtless performative agreement with good ideas. Yes, I agree, this is a good thing. But let's take, uh, take on something a bit trickier, maybe a bit more complex. Let's say uh, an online subscription service like uh, Audible or like Netflix particularly um, that a lot of people use. Lots of these services will give out a free month of use, a free month trial as part of their uh, promotion when you sign up. It's a promotional tool where they hope you enjoy their service enough that you will want to keep it. That's a nice thing. But there's nothing stopping you from, say, canceling your account after that month is almost over and then signing up under a different email address for another free month. Then you get a second month. And I know a lot of people who have done this kind of thing, and I'm not free entirely from this accusation myself, but how many of us would have stopped before that decision and asked, is this a good thing to do? Is this exploiting the goodwill of a service or is this a morally neutral thing to do? Could it be that obviously the intention of this is that a customer would begin to pay for their service after the month has elapsed and that evading that cost is kind of dishonest in some vague way, a step away from goodness and away from rightness? Now, it may seem like a small thing, but goodness is built of the small things that we do. And it's a small thing indeed. But if goodness is close to your heart, then you should be training yourself to worry about small things like that. Faithful people are good people. And now after goodness on this list comes knowledge. Now when the passage talks about the knowledge of God earlier on, uh, it uses a different term than it does here. It uses uh, epigenosi rather than gnosi. Anyway, um, when Peter talks about the knowledge of God, he means the really intense, uh, first-hand, intimate, undeniable knowledge you get of having done something or been somewhere when something happened. Uh, you know this because you were exposed to it directly. You know it in that kind of face-to-face, -face, intimate way. But the virtue of knowledge is the more general uh, idea of what we mean when we say knowing something, like gaining in wisdom, becoming better informed on matters, and particularly on matters of faith. This means knowing our scriptures better, 
knowing what it means to be a follower of Jesus better, to have that as something that we know. The scriptures, of course, the best place to go for this knowledge. Uh, that's where God has accumulated for us this wealth of knowledge about him, of who we are, of how we relate to him, of how we relate to the world that he's put us in. And that's something that we are better equipped to pursue knowledge of now than anyone has ever been in human history. We have the Bible in our own language, in multiple translations, easily accessed. Uh, no one arrests us in this country for having that Bible. Uh, and if we... Uh, want them we can look and we have 2,000 years worth of books written about the Bible and about being a Christian to choose from. Now if that's the problem, if there's too much to start with, uh, if you're the kind of person who looks at a store like Kurong and you're afraid of where to start because the choice is so intimidating, then start with a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It was amazingly helpful to me beginning my journey and I happen to have five spare copies. If you want one, spam me in the chat I will supply you with that if I can. All I charge you is that you promise to read it. Because faithful people are a learning people. And a people who pursue knowledge. Now self-control is the next on this list. Self-control, discipline, temperance. It's the virtue of not permitting our passions and our appetites to dictate our decision making. There's a common human pattern that we all go through at some point, and it goes like this. I will never do this thing again. Well, okay, just this once, I'll do this thing. Why did I do this thing after I said I wouldn't do it again? I will never do this thing again. Rinse and repeat. You may be familiar with this cycle. It's the treadmill of sin, and it comes from a lack of self-control. It applies to a variety of sins, including the one you are thinking of right now. And cultivating self-control does not come from learning a new knowledge or wishing harder or praying more, in fact. Self-control is itself a habit. And it needs to become a habit stronger than the habit it's trying to beat. God has given us a weapon in this regard. It's called fasting. It's the entry-level way to learn self-control. And self-control is a virtue. Um, and if it's a virtue that you feel you are lacking, then write it down, put a line under it, and ask a pastor or a mentor about learning how to fast and how to master self-control. You will not regret it. Faithful people are a self-controlled people. Perseverance is next. Perseverance is the art of relentlessness. It's the marathon stamina for doing hard things. And while being a believer is in many ways the easiest thing in the world, because you're made for it, it should fit hand in glove, and nothing satisfies like it, for example, we all know that the world throws blasts of difficulty and challenge at us that make us feel all the time, or at least in bursts of time, uh, that it would be easier to compromise our beliefs to get by this time. Or if we just closed our eyes and pretended we didn't have the convictions we do, it wouldn't be an issue. Or if we just gave up doing the hard thing that God has commanded us to do, life would be so much easier. Now sometimes a ministry that you help in might begin to feel like a difficulty or a draining thing. Sometimes a job that we do feels boring and unrewarding. Uh, sometimes a workplace or a school might feel like uh, it's in fact maybe even downright hostile to believers. Or as an outlandish example, sometimes the circumstances of life require us to do a familiar thing, church, let's say, uh, let's say in an unfamiliar way that is less fulfilling and rewarding. 
And perseverance is the capacity to strive towards the good in spite of the pain and trial and difficulty of a given circumstance. And Jesus has promised us that there will be trials for those who love him. That's going to happen. Faithful people are a persevering people. Now, godliness in this list means something specific. It means piety. Uh, It means deliberately enshrining in our heart a reverence for the things of God. It's a desire to be more intimately connected with God. It's not prayerfulness or scripture knowledge or moral goodness. It's the cultivated desire and practice to become more prayerful uh, and to know more about scripture and to be more morally good because those are godly things and we desire to be godly. If church and faith have become a a kind of a social thing or a less than real thing to you, what you lack may be a sense of piety, of godliness. Now we build godliness with those disciplines of a believer, first by being bad at them and wondering if we're ever going to get better at them, but then by persevering until that period where we've developed some consistency and that consistency begins to shape the way that we frame our days and our life. And if you need godliness, practice consistency in your daily Christian habits. Faithful people are a godly people. And the last two virtues listed here are mutual affection and love. Philadelphos and agape in the Greek. Uh, In a sense, they are just two kinds of love and both are essential for the life of a believer and a follower of God. And when Peter says mutual affection, uh, brotherly love, he means that kind of special patience responsibility and kindness and charity that we have for one another within a community, specifically a church community, a community of believers. It's rooted in the knowledge that we are all seeking to serve God together. And we can all serve God by advancing and helping and at times just tolerating one another within the boundaries of the kingdom that God has put us in. There's a distinct quality to the kind of love that binds together a body of believers in a church And it's by that quality that a church of believers uh, lives or dies. Not only the relationships that the individuals have with God, but the godly relationships they have with one another. This doesn't mean that you need to uh, intimately know the lives of hundreds of people in your church. But it does mean that you should recognize the people in your church as your brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is owed your best loving efforts to see the other thrive. And alongside that kind of love is a a general, broad, fundamental sense of love that believers must cultivate in their hearts. It's a desire to see good in the world and especially for its people. And sometimes this love will conflict with itself because you might seek to do something, uh, you might see someone who you love, uh, seek to do something that makes them happy and you love them and you want them to be happy but maybe it's a self-destructive thing and you love them and you want them to be safe. Building this kind of love in yourself is the short road to heart-sick suffering and it's absolutely essential to be the kind of disciple that God wants in this world. Love is our ability to take our internal desire to succeed and thrive and to stretch it out uh, out of ourselves and to wrap it around someone else and declare that my heart is going to be bound up in not just how I succeed or fail, but how this person succeeds and fails. I'm going to rejoice when they rejoice. I'm going to suffer when they suffer. 
I'll be their supplementary wisdom that they need when they are making hard choices. I will share with them the emotional cost of doing the dumb things anyway. That is why we say God is love. Because the creator of the universe, instead of making a perfect race of robots who praised his name forever in a meaningless eternity, he created a world in which he was required to suffer when we suffered. And where he delighted in giving us delight. And where he is bound up to his people in covenants of love and faithfulness, given power by the demonstration of his love. To come to earth, to suffer like a man, to die like a man, uh, to rise from the grave, to give man this knowledge, this special promise that he loves us so much that he would overcome death on our behalf. These loves Peter commends to us. And there is no way in the world to improve them other than by doing them. By being loving to one another and acting loving and making the sacrifices that love entails uh, on whatever scale that we can manage. We increase in ourselves the capacity to love by doing these things. And it's one of those virtues that's governed by what's called the Matthew principle uh, that comes from in the Gospel of Matthew where Christ says, to him who has been given much more will be added, uh, but to he who has been given nothing, even what he has will be taken away. If you guard your heart too dearly, your ability to love, uh, both to love those in your church and those more broadly, will wither and become smaller. But if you are willing to open your heart and make the risky loving choices that will expose you certainly to pain in your life, that's how we become more loving. And faithful people are a loving people. Now there are seven virtues on this list. And here's one advantage of being in a church congregation that's meeting online right now. You don't have to file down to the car park and drive home or go, uh, go out to meet someone right now. Once this sermon is over, there is nothing stopping you from grabbing a piece of paper and writing down one of these things and sticking it on the fridge so that you have a reminder of what you've committed to here. Choose one of them. Talk to someone about it. Make a plan of how you might go about growing in this way. And then knowing that God has given you everything you need to succeed in this way, seek to become more like the Savior who has set you free. And if you succeed so wildly at improving one of these character traits, one of these virtues, that you can afford to move on to the next, well, move on to the next. This is how we become more godly. And as Peter says, if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we can't praise you sufficiently for the blessings that you've given us. Not only freeing us from sin and death, but freeing us from this life to live a life for you full of goodness and freed from the destructive desires inherent in a godless life, the kind that we would live without you. Help us to cultivate these virtues, God, and convict us, please, of uh, that which we most need to address so that we might better serve you in your mission in this world. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you, church.